Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8 as we continue as we uh, continue our study through this Old Testament uh, wonderful, interesting uh, book. And this morning our text is going to be Leviticus 9 and 10. I'm not going to read all of 9 and 10, but I'm going to read uh, parts of each and that'll become clear as we walk our way through and I'll kind of lead us through that. So if um, you're able and willing, as is our custom, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to first read Leviticus 9, 1 to 6. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then in verses 7 down to verse 21, the sacrifices are given. That There's instructions given and then the sacrifices themselves are given for the priest as well as then for the people. And then in verse 22, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went to the tent of meeting. When they, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Chapter 10, I'm going to be reading 1 to 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Meshael and Elsaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And then from verses 8 to 15, the Lord reminds Aaron of all these instructions once again for the sacrifices. And then in verse 16, now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? 
Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they've offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten this sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, indeed, this is your word. Would you now take it, meet it with your spirit in our hearts? And would you exalt your name on high? Might we see indeed this day your holiness, your justice, and yes, even your wrath. But but may we also see the wonder of the Lord Jesus by whom we are covered. May we see your grace and may we see your mercy. And may we leave this place challenged and encouraged, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Years ago, I shared a story that I'm about to share now, and it, it happened years and years ago. But I was helping a professor do some yard work, and it was at a time in mine and Jenny's life, the life of our family, where... Um, I had to find some other odd jobs to do to kind of help supplement the ministry that I was involved in. And so I was helping this gentleman with some yard work. And he wasn't a theology professor of mine. He wasn't a professor from my seminary days. But in fact, he was a university professor. And as we were working alongside one another in his yard, he asked me what I did for a living And it was right before I I went back to seminary. Uh, It was right after I had made a kind of a theological transition to to become what I am now, a Reformed Presbyterian. And so I answered him and I told him, "I'm, I'm training to be a minister, I said. And he goes, oh, what denomination? And I said, Presbyterian. That's one of the first times that I answered in that way and I said Presbyterian, but I also knew full well that he'd assume that I meant mainline Presbyterianism with all the baggage that went along with it. And I was right because he then said to me something like this. He said, oh, good. I'm glad you're not one of those that takes the Bible seriously and literally. And then he went on to say this. He said, I mean, if it really took God pouring out his wrath on his son in order for my forgiveness and for me to go to heaven, then when I get there, I'm going to tell him that I don't want it. Now, I didn't say anything out loud, but in my mind, I thought, and you won't have it. And you won't be there and you will tell him nothing because God is God and you are not. Think of the gall to say if it takes the blood of Christ to forgive me of my sin, I'm going to tell him I do not want it. God's holiness His perfect righteousness, His absolute sovereignty, His divine justice. Well, those are things that the world hates, aren't they? 
they are things the world hates. And isn't it interesting that even those who say they do not believe in God often hate Him? There's an irony there, isn't there? That they hate the one they say does not exist. But what they hate is that there is a God and they aren't Him. That's what they really hate. And yet, as is often the case, it's easy for us, isn't it, to look out there and to see how they, those folks, do that. We look out there and we see how the world hates God's justice and God's holiness, God's sovereignty, and yet how often we ignore our own profaning of His name and His attributes. So how do we do such a thing? I would never say such a thing. No, we might not say such a thing, but we or those we love experiences, experience the consequences of the fall in this life and we're tempted to cry what? It's not fair. It's not fair. We read of Uzzah, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, who was walking along with the cart on which was the ark of God and it stumbled, if you'll remember that story, and Uzzah reached out to take hold of it just to help. And he was struck dead on the spot. And we recoil at the thought. And we say, Lord, he was just trying to help. Come on. Is often how we think. It's not fair. And yet, it had been made clear, hadn't it? I mean, God had given very clear instructions. You shall not touch the holy things or you will die. Seemed pretty clear. We read of Moses in Numbers chapter 20. Who struck the rock rather than speaking to the rock. And he was therefore prevented from entering into the promised land. And we say, really, Lord? Was it that big of a deal? He, okay, he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. And yet again, God had told him to just speak to it. You know, we expect God to always show mercy, don't we? And often we recoil when his justice falls. It's not fair. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, writes, When God's justice falls, we are offended because we think God owes perpetual mercy. And that's what we think, don't we? And we are also offended, I think, because it is at that moment that we must face that we are not God that we aren't the ones who are sovereign. We aren't the one that gets to decide what is just and right and good and fair. We're faced with the fact that we are not God and if not for His mercy, if not for His grace, then we would stand under that judgment. I mean, we've been learning that in Leviticus, haven't we? I mean, if there's one thing we've learned in Leviticus, it is that God is... God is holy. We are sinners. 
And apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God's wrath would be upon us. And, and if we're honest, we don't like to think of God's wrath. Even many parts within the life of the church would be content to never think of God's holiness, His utter holiness, that He is holy in all things. To think of His justice, His holy justice. We sometimes would never want to think of his wrath, his divine and righteous wrath. To never consider what God thinks about what's going on within, within those who claim to be his and within those who claim to be his church. But brothers and sisters, if we never consider his holiness and his wrath, then the cross of the Lord Jesus becomes but a tepid platitude to soothe a bothered conscience. It becomes nothing but just therapy. In the words of Richard Niebuhr, and these were written many years ago, and it's the same today, that the message of the church in America has been this. You've heard me say it before. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. For you see, when we do not think properly of God, we cannot properly think about Christ. This morning from Leviticus 9 and 10 God's holiness, God's wrath, it's put on display. But it's put on display so that we also might see His mercy. So that we might also see the wonder of the cross and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see three things. We'll see the sacrifice of the priest in chapter 9 as we read. We'll see uh, judgment fall on Nadab and Abihu. And then we'll see judgment withheld from Eleazar and Ithamar. So those three things. And let's call our divisions um, a priestly sacrifice. We'll call it a strange fire and then an uneaten offering. All right, so first a priestly sacrifice. And we're reminded at the very beginning of chapter 9 <clears throat> that the ordination service that took place in chapter 8 was truly quite the affair. Uh, we, we begin by reading, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Notice, on the eighth day, this has been going on for several days. Aaron and his sons have been performing what the Lord had commanded for seven days at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this ceremony that they went through, this ordination ceremony, wasn't just an hour. It wasn't just an hour and a half. It wasn't two hours. It wasn't even a day. It was it was seven days. It was a process preparing these men as priests of the living God. Remember, they were, they were being set apart for this particular role. And, and we learn some things about, about God's ministers here, I think, don't we? And, and about God as well. well one, it's that, that God himself sets apart his ministers. They don't take this role upon themselves and nor they, do they determine how best they're going to do it. No, it is something that God does. God sets apart his ministers and they do as he commands. 
And for a week, again, for a week, they continued performing these tasks. Seven days, the number of completion, the number of wholeness. Again, what we get here is a sense of preparation to be ready to serve the Lord. God calls his ministers. God sets apart his ministers and God prepares them for service. And it was no light affair. Seven full days for the ordination service. This wasn't a sprint. It was a marathon ordination service. We sit through a church service for an hour and 15 minutes and we're like, oh, my goodness. This was a week. This was a week. Can you imagine? And I think this is a lesson for all of us, isn't it? Not that we need to do better sitting through church. That's not the lesson here. But whether it's for the Christian minister or whether it's for any of us in, within the life of the Christian. The, the emphasis here of, on obedience to God's word over and over and over and over again. And I, and I sometimes think that as the church, we look, from, um, we look to get from ministry, let me say it that way, the same we do from other areas. Um, we're, we're looking for a quick fix, as it were. Uh, we, want, we want it done overnight. We want to go to a conference. I'm going to go to a conference on this, and I'm going to come out on the other side, and hey, I'm going to be good to go. We're going to go to a marriage conference, and we're going to leave on Friday. We're going to be done Saturday afternoon, and when we're done, our marriage is going to be hunky-dory. You've been there, done that, and that just doesn't work, does it? But that's what we want. We want, to go to, we want to go to a conference and be sanctified. Come out on the other side, I'm, I'm good to go now. I mean, that's what, we, that's what we want. I mean, and even think about the church. The church often chases after every new theological fad or uh, sadly even societal fad while forgetting and even often forsaking the steady Application of God's means of grace. And that may seem boring. But I'll take boring every day to be sanctified. To be more like Jesus. Week in, week out, God's means of grace Ministry and obedience to his word led by those called by God to do so. Now, some of you may even be thinking now, okay, well, that's just a way for pastors to talk about it. So pastors have somebody to minister to and can justify what they do. Oh, please don't look at, at least your minister's here in that way. Please don't. Because a lot of times I would rather be a lot of other places than here, than ministering day in, day out, week in, week out with the normal everyday trudge through one foot in front of the other sanctification process. And lest we think that those called by God to do so somehow are more righteous or somehow don't need the same cleansing of the blood of the Lord Jesus as do the people. 
Well, we're reminded pretty quickly here that that's not the case, aren't we? That it wasn't just, I mean, the, the sacrifices weren't just commanded to the people, but even Aaron was to present an offering before the Lord for himself before he ever did it for the people. Again, we're reminded that these earthly priests had to sacrifice for themselves, even as for the people. Why? Because these earthly priests cannot do what only Jesus has done. Your earthly minister today cannot do what only Jesus has done. And, and notice for Aaron, I, I love this part. We kind of began this last week and uh, mentioning it and it moves into the text for this morning. Notice for Aaron, take yourself a bull calf. Well, that's interesting right out of the gate, isn't it? Because that's the first time that we've heard that. So no, it's not. We've, we've, heard a, we've heard a bull. In fact, it was the most expensive to give. Yeah, it was the most expensive to, get, to give, but here it's a bull calf. It's not just a bull. It's an unusual sacrifice. Could it be? Could it be that for Aaron and for the people of God as witnesses of what Aaron had done in leading the people astray with the golden calf back in Exodus at the feet of Mount Sinai? The very thing that he offered to the people and said, this is your God is now being sacrificed before the one true God. Reminding him and the people of the seriousness of his sin. And yet, at the same time, reminding them as well of the provision of God for the forgiveness of sin. Again, we said it last week, we'll say it again. There is no sin too big for the cross of the Lord Jesus. There is no sin so gross that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse it. That's good news, isn't it? And just by way of application, if any of us are sitting here going, that really doesn't apply to me. Guess what? You don't understand the depth of your own sin. You need to sit for just a moment and let that sink in and praise the Lord for the blood of Christ that cleanses you even of your arrogance and your pride to think you don't even really need Him. So we've got sacrifices for the priest, sacrifices for the people, to what end? Notice verse 6. This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Isn't that interesting and wonderful both? The glory of the Lord is coming. The glory of the Lord is coming. And when His glory comes, what? You don't want to be uncovered. You don't want to be uncovered. The holiness of God we see, the glory of God we see, and at the same time we see the grace of God. His glory's coming, but you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. And we too often think we actually can stand before Him. That, 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 we're, that we're somehow good enough. That we're clean enough. That we're righteous enough. At least I'm better than my neighbor. At least I'm better than the guy down the street. Or whatever it is. Well, you may be. But it's still not good enough to stand before the Lord. We too often think we're just not that bad. Brothers and sisters, we need God's forgiveness. This is, what, 
This is what we're learning in Leviticus. We need God's forgiveness. And in Christ Jesus, guess what? We've got it. We have it. Notice verse 22. So after the offerings and the sacrifices, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. Then in 23, when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to the people. So notice how it works. Notice the flow. There's the sacrifice, then there's blessing, then there's glory. And even within the sacrifice itself, and we've seen this over and over again in chapters 1 to 7. We've got the sin offering, we've got the burnt offering, and we've got the fellowship offering. So follow that. We've got what? The forgiveness of sin. We have the devotion and the setting apart to the Lord. And then we have the fellowship with the Lord and then blessing and glory. And isn't that the way that it follows? Even in the Christian life? You know, sometimes I think, sometimes I think that we live the way that we think the spiritual life of ancient Israel worked. Here's what I mean by that. We think. So we give ourselves to the Lord. We, we make a decision. We give ourselves to the Lord. We commit to do this. And, and then we do the best we can. And then we mess up. And then we need forgiveness. And so we add some forgiveness, you know, in there with our righteousness. And, and then we're good to go. That's not what's being communicated here in ancient Israel. And nor is it what's communicated in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It begins with a forgiveness of sin. It's a necessity for sinners like us. And that forgiveness is provided by God. It's not something we do, that we perform, but it's given by God. And because we've been forgiven, there's blessing and there's glory. And think for Israel. I mean, they've been waiting for this day. For the glory of the Lord. Here in the tabernacle. For public worship services to start, as it were. When the glory of God would come into the tabernacle. And Israel, they, oh, how they wanted him. And yet at the same time, how they feared him. They wanted him. But did they? Did they want his presence? Remember Israel at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, the glory of God coming? What do they do? Most of them tucked tail and turned and ran. They were scared. Why? Because God had showed up. They, they want him, but they, but they fear him. They revere him. And properly so. Verse 24, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Brothers and sisters, if we want to know what happens when God shows up, this is what happens when God shows up. People shout and they fall on their face. It's a wonderful and it's a serious thing when God shows up. The glory of the Lord was in their midst. And to approach the holy God on our own terms is a disastrous affair. I, I said this morning inadvertently, I said, I said it's, it's really an interesting thing that chapter 10 follows chapter 9. And everybody kind of went, no, that's not interesting at all. That's the way it should be. 
Duh. What I meant to say was it's really interesting that in chapter 10 right here is that the, what, what first happens after God shows up is that two people die. Two people die when God shows up. The wonder of grace is that we can approach an all-holy God, that he has provided a way into his presence. He has provided a way to enter back into the garden of God that is a, the wonder of grace, but there are consequences to presuming that we can do so in our own way. If we learn nothing else from Leviticus 10 right here, there are consequences in presuming that we may enter into the presence of God in any way that we see fit. Now, with all the emphasis, well, let me say this. Jesus tells us in John 10, doesn't he? And I think we sometimes think this, I'll say this in a minute again, but we think that oh, this is God of the Old Testament, not God of the New Testament, as if there's some difference there. But we turn to John 10. Remember what Jesus says? In John 10, with that great passage as shepherd of the sheep, he says, I am the door. What did he mean by that? He said, I'm the only way. John 14, what's he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but who? But through me. But through me. We have that in shadow here with Nadab and Abihu, don't we? Now it's, you may say in shadow, it's put on display, the dudes are dead. Yeah, in that way, yeah, not in shadow at all. But the, but the truth, who presumed upon the Lord, with all the emphasis on, on just as the Lord has commanded, as Moses commanded, all the emphasis on obedience over and over and over again. We've had that emphasis. And we, and we might even think that because if you read through it again, you'll notice how many times it says it, how many times things are repeated. And we might think, well, is it really necessary to say it again and again and again? How many times, how often are we apt to say things like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard it before. I get it. How many times have you heard your children say to you after you've told them, I don't know how many times they're like, fine, dad, I get it. I hear you. I heard you the first time. And then what happens? They don't do it. Mom, I know you tell me that all the time. And as a mom, you're going, then why in the world aren't you doing it? Right? Do you think Nadab and Abihu said something like that? Yeah, yeah, we got it all, God. We got it. It's not that big of a deal. And in fact, and in fact, wouldn't it be cool if we did it this way? Because that's even better than what God has commanded. I don't know if they actually had that dialogue, but it's what they did. It is what they did. The sons of Aaron the sons of the high priest, priests themselves, just having gone through all this ritual, all this service, on the very day of public worship, 
Each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Can you imagine the setting? If you were watching this from afar, you might do something like this. Dang! What just happened? What just happened? And, and again, we, we might, after saying that, we might go, God, was it that big of a deal? They didn't, I mean, it can't be that serious, can it? What's really going on here? What's going on here is that Nadab and Abihu presumed upon the Lord. They thought they could approach him in any way that they determined And Nadab and Abihu were priests. They represented God to his people. They were to reflect his holiness. And yet they presumed to speak for God. And notice. This was amazing to me. They didn't sin in doing something God said not to do. Let me say that again. They did not sin in doing something God said not to do. Nor did they sin in not doing what God said to do. There's really not a sin of commission or omission here. In fact, they sinned in presuming that they could do whatever they wanted to do. That's the sin here. Could we not say again, they presume to be God rather than representing him. We ministers in the church today would do well to ask that same thing of ourselves. Are we presuming to speak for God or are we representing him? We as believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us, We could ask that of ourselves too. Are we presuming to be God rather than representing Him to our families, to our spouse, to a watching world? Are we presuming to be God rather than representing Him? And imagine Aaron. Don't you kind of feel for Aaron? I kind of feel for Aaron here. Put myself in his place. His two sons just died. and I mean, they, they, they burned. And they did so by the hand of the Lord. And, and we're not told this, but, it, but as a father, I would. I don't, I don't know about Aaron because it doesn't tell us. But as a father, there would have been some pride there for me. My two sons, they're priests of the living God. They're representing God to the people. Look at my boys. And then they're burned up on the spot. That's hard. That's hard. You'd think that he'd want to protest. Or at least question God. Or at least grieve for them. But what did the Lord say? The Lord said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Good job, Aaron. Good job. I would too, I hope. 
and it's not to mourn them. So Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon and the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Get them out of the camp. And so they carry them out. And then, and then to Aaron and to his other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, he says, do not mourn lest you die. Let the house of Israel mourn. But you, basically he's saying to them, but you are to be about the work of the Lord. How do we know that? Because he says, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. This is incredible, isn't it? What's being communicated here? And what is it? The work of the Lord is more important than even what's going on within your family. Wow. Wow. There are bigger things going on than even mourning the death of your, two, your own two sons. I mean, we hear that and we go, oh, no, nah, there's nothing more important than that. We're talking death here. Well, th this is another great opportunity to remind ourselves that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a good opportunity to remind ourselves that even though we might struggle with the error of thinking that God was holy and righteous and wrathful and just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we're given a kinder, gentler God. And so it's very different today or God's very different today. No, not at all. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 9, a man, a man was being called to follow the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 9. And yet he says to Jesus, he says, I'll follow, but, but let me first go bury my father. And remember what Jesus said to him? He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Man, that sounds harsh for 21st century ears, doesn't it? You know why it sounds harsh for 21st century ears? Is because we believe that this world and everything in it is ultimate. That's why that seems so harsh to us. That's why we recoil at it. There are more important things than what we see with our eyes. Young people, you young people, now adults, you need to hear this too, but particularly you young people, even you children, hear this. We, and, and particularly for you children, because it's what you see all the time. It's always right before you. There are more important things than what you see with your eyes. There are more important things than what is always just right before you. We think this world is ultimate and even that physical death is the worst thing that could happen to somebody. One of the things that we learn here in this passage is no, it's not. No, it is not. Meeting God apart from the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ is. If you want some motive for missions and evangelism, there it is. The worst thing would to be in the hands of an angry God. And we may think, okay, well, that's enough. And I realize we're getting 
close to noon. Y'all act like it's not really noon. Act like it's 10 till. Uh, just a few more minutes and we'll be done. But usually at noon, it's, it's amazing as a preacher. You're preaching, all of a sudden it gets to noon and you can just almost see it. Okay, well, it's just noon. Time to go. Don't do that yet. Don't do that yet. We're almost done. And we may think, we may think, well, that's enough for the first day of the enactment of these rituals here in Israel, right? Certainly, Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire before the Lord will be the only thing that goes wrong here in the first day, right? No, wrong. The Lord, through Moses here in the text, takes another opportunity to remind Aaron of God's instructions for him and his sons, what they should and should not do. Reminding, and that, and that takes place there. We, we didn't read that section. is between verses 8 and 15. Reminding them to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. He reminds them again for the third or the fourth time, however many times it's been, how the sacrifices are to be done for him and for his sons. I mean, notice even in the midst of all of this, that's gracious. Notice the kindness and the goodness of God. He's already told them numerous times, but in light of what has just happened, he tells them again for his glory and for their good. And again, we wonder about our own children, don't we? How many times do I need to remind them till they get it? Maybe. Maybe that's how many times we need to tell them until they get it. Over and over and over and over again. And so here's Moses. And, and even so, even though he's told him yet again, things that are to be done, how to do them. Moses goes looking around to see that things are being done properly. And we know that because it says he inquires diligently about the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was burned up. And we may, just reading it there, if we ourselves have forgotten what's supposed to be done with the goat of the sin offering, we may not get the, the import of this. But the import is this. Notice what he says. You should have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. This should have been eaten. So here we are. Moses takes a look around. He finds out that it's all been burned up. And if we're just reading it and we remember, we go, oh my goodness, there's going to be three more dead here. And they're going to be taken outside the camp. And then what? Because if that's Aaron and these other two sons, there's nobody left. Nobody left. And yet, they don't drop dead. Aaron says, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And then it says, When Moses heard this, or heard that, he approved. And we might go, okay, wait, what? Nadab and Abihu did something that the Lord was silent about and judgment falls on them. Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar don't do something that God explicitly told them to do and Moses approves. I don't get it. What gives here? Here's what gives. Nadab and Abihu presumed upon God. They acted as if God did not exist. They acted as if they were in the place of God. But here, it's a sin of omission. And they do still sin. And it's still worthy of judgment falling. And yet, notice why they did what they did. Now this isn't blaming God. They did what they did out of a fear of God. 
out of a reverence for God. Would God approve, he asks. You see, what they did wasn't without thought for God. That was Nadab and Abihu. We can do whatever we want to do. No, this wasn't without a thought for God, but it was actually because of God. They were thinking incorrectly about him, but they were at least thinking of him. And because of that, God shows grace and mercy toward those with a humble heart. And doesn't that fit the character of God? God opposes the proud, but he gives what to the humble? Grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Even here in the ritual life of the sacrificial system in Israel, the heart before the Lord matters. And so let's ask the question of ourselves. Where's our hearts before the Lord? Proud? Arrogant? Or humble? Do we respond? How do we respond? As we read of His holiness even here in the text, His wrath against sin, do we respond with, it's not fair. It's too harsh. As if we determine what's right and fair and just. Or do we respond with bended knee? Do we read of the holiness and the glory of God and we respond with, he, he shouldn't expect that with, uh, from us. That's not fair. Or do we respond and with, with rejoicing that God has provided a way in Christ Jesus? What's our response? Because God has provided the Lord Jesus, the door that we may enter into the garden of God. He has provided the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, for fellowship with Him, for, for blessing by Him, and even for glory in Him. Is that the response that we give? Let's pray. God in heaven, may that be our response, a response of praise in the Lord Jesus for what he has done for us, that we might enter into your presence. May we rejoice this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.